you got to keep the big picture that, hey, we're changing the world. We're changing the world. If you want to be taken seriously, you have to be consistent. We're speaking with people that are sending a pulse to their industry. Pulse Welcome to, their to industry. Electric People. We have Dave Madsen on the show. Check out Tim Ballard. Jeff Curl. Sheckler. Kenzie Watts. The League presents Electric People. Electric People, welcome back. We are sitting here with Ed Fenster, co-founder of Sunrun, executive chairperson. And basically, we would just need to start, if you're in solar, with a big thank you to Ed Fenster for turning solar as a service into a reality that's blessing so many lives and rooftops right now. How you doing, Ed? Good. Thanks. Awesome to be here. Well, thank you for joining us, man. Let's jump right in. So um, we made the mistake. We interviewed Lynn a little while ago. And uh, if Lynn's listening, the words that I chose was, you're credited with starting the industry. And she said, credited, we did it. So you started Solar as a Service Ed, co-founded Sunrun with Lynn. Uh, and, you know, I was looking at your at your bio. You got a BA for John's, from Johns Hopkins in economics and computer science. So what did you, what did you think you were going to go into before you came out here and changed the world? Yeah, I always thought it was, you know, it was going to be technology. You know, my my father made a strong effort to introduce me to that. I was like programming when I was five. Really? I was like teaching people about the Internet in like the 1980s. Um, and that was kind of what I expected. But I graduated college in 1999 and it just felt terrifying to go into technology in that year. Uh, and so Y2K. I kind of ended up in finance instead. Y2K year. <laughs> yeah. well, it was, you know, that was, you know, dot-com failure 1.0. Um, and, um, yeah, and, you know, but I, but that's what allowed me to, you know, I, I ran the IT systems, mail, telephone, all that email wow. for the, for the company for years. So I, you know, so I, you know, I, I try not to demonstrate too much confidence in that area, but I, but I do have a good deal. Education in it. You're like exactly. the undercover boss, or you're like the it's like it's like a sales yeah. rep that knows Spanish, but only like, <laughs> yeah, exactly like right. we'll have sales yeah. reps be in homes that speak Spanish, yeah. and they don't know the sales rep speaks Spanish, so he's just like eavesdropping yeah. on the combo. That's Ed with all the IT stuff. Yeah, that's right. Listen yeah, it wasn't until her like twelfth year at Sunrun that I think Lynn let anyone see her use the coffee machine. So you know, kind of like yeah, you know, same strategy. <laughs> don't get it twisted. Right? <laughs> well, you you got your MBA from Stanford, which is I believe that's where you and Lynn met, or you and Lynn met right at Sanford okay yeah. so yeah. give us mm-hmm. give us kind of the story of the Sunrun startup I'm, I'm fascinated because what year would that have been what year did you were you at uh, Stanford yeah we were uh, 2005 to 2007 okay you know I I met Lynn like the day before school started we were on like a retreat um, you know we both signed up late it was supposedly uh, you know this like houseboat in Lake Shasta but it was really like a floating garbage barge with a porta potty, um, but it was all the people who like didn't sign up earlier. And you know, my uh, my my wife at the time uh, pulled me aside. She's like, "Oh my god, I just met this most amazing person. You have to meet her." You know, and that was Lynn. So you know, we had become friends like early, early on uh, in our time at Stanford. And then you know, a year and a half later, I guess uh, I had had a high school friend who came to me and was like, "Hey, have you looked at solar recently?" Uh, you know, it's getting less expensive. I think it might work. And, you know, for me at that point, I would have thought solar was like, you know, for satellites, not like terrestrial mm-hmm. based power. But then I started, you know, you started to look at it and you're like, wow, this is like, this is such an awesome opportunity. Um, and uh, I, you know, Lynn was always the person who I knew, if, you know, there's anyone I wanted to go into business with from Stanford in my class, it was Lynn. So, uh, you know, uh, pitched it to her and, uh, you know, she liked it. And, uh, you know, 
the rest, I guess, is history. It's crazy. I mean, it's not, we're not, I mean, you can't just tie a nice bow on that story with the rest is history. We're going to get, we're getting, we're going to get, we're going to actually, we're, we're, we're going to find, we're show. about to get into what the rest is before the, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, I'm imagining like, you know, it's like a, it's like a Zuckerberg, like Winklevoss, like, you know, twin, like, where they're just like cohorting in their dorm rooms together, like we should do solar panels on well, houses. I had, yeah, How I had do we make it affordable? Like, uh, what were all the what were all the questions uh, as you guys are like coming yeah. up with the, this idea? Like, what were the, the what were the questions that you guys were like trying to solve to come up with the idea? Mm-hmm. Well, and I had heard that this was a yeah, project well, the, at school. Mm-hmm. Wasn't it, it? Wasn't I thought it was like a project that you guys were like no. working on in the same group. Close. So Lynn and I and several other people who had previously worked in investment businesses, like we're looking at like potentially how to group to start and examine a kind of investment business. Mm. This came kind of on the side. Um, and I actually remember, you know, because we had that investment business, you know, kind of conversation going on, you know, when 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 we were making the final decision, I think Lynn said something like, well, you know, we could lever up mattress companies and sell them back and forth to our friends, you know, or we could do this. Like how much more exciting. Mattresses (laughs) could have been so different. You could Uh, be doing those mattress warehouses. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Exactly. You got it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, we, I mean, it was, you know, were the solar panels going to become less costly? I think we were really confident that was the case. You know, what was the, what was the best place to be deploying solar? You know, was it rooftops? Was it residential rooftops? was it uh, in the desert? You know, there we also felt like residential was the right place to be. That was a much more controversial, I think, call that we made than that we thought the panels were going to get less expensive. Uh, and and once you put those two pieces together, you know, then the rest was history. But yeah, those that was a lot of the original work. And obviously, you know, the first time when we were looking at this, the tax credit, the 30% tax credit was expiring in one or two years. Um, you know, it got extended for eight years at 30 you know, then it got extended for a few more years. Now we're at the precipice of it potentially being extended for like 15 years. You know, that's pretty crazy. So, crazy. Um, you know, with this, the industry has just come a really long way. Well, so you have you. Sorry, Ty. Okay. You have this idea for solar to put on people's roofs. Like that seems easy enough. Like let's use people's mm-hmm. rooftops to get solar. But the real magic happened when you came up with the PPA, right? I mm-hmm. mean, that's really when. That's yeah. really what. So. Like, how did you guys come up with mm-hmm. that? Because the problem, obviously, is, yeah, the cost of solar was at that time coming down, but it was still really, really expensive mm-hmm. to put solar on your home. And um, so the problem is, how do we make this something that the common homeowner can do and we can do this for the masses, not just the wealthy, Yeah. right? So how did you guys yeah, come up with the idea? It. It was a, that's a perfect, perfect segue. So what we did when we said, look, we think the residential rooftop is the right place to do it. And the reason we came to that conclusion was that, you know, the wholesale power markets in the United States, the people who actually make the electrons in like the big coal fire power plants are different companies than the companies that sell you a homeowner electricity, you know, PG&E or, um, or whoever. And, uh, and the, the the wholesale people, really brutally competitive business. But the people who transmit and distribute electricity, bloated monopolies, no cost control, horrible customer satisfaction scores. 
And so you said, man, you know, solar is the first technology that works at a small scale. If we can go straight to the customer, you know, we can compete with this bloated power cost. You know, the power I buy from PG&E costs seven times more than they pay for it in the wholesale market. So we're like, that's definitely the, the place to go, right? The power price is higher. People hate the, you know, incumbent and it's scalable in a way that, you know, the rest of it really wasn't. So that's saying a great. So then we said, well, you know, but can you really do that? And so, you know, you looked in, say, California at the time and the actual like return you would earn if you were a California homeowner uh, putting solar on your roof in 2007 was pretty good. It was like a 15 percent return, uh, you know, over 20 years, uh, you know, without any without any debt. Uh, which which is actually quite attractive. Uh, but at the time, only like 60,000 people had done it. So like the question was, why? Like, why is something that obviously is, you know, a good investment and has all these other benefits, like clean, clean, reliable power for your family? Like, why hadn't more people done it? And there were two things we uncovered. Uh, and, this, and the PPA really attract, you know, handles both objections. The first one, which you mentioned, and which got a lot of media you know, uh, attention was avoiding the upfront cost, right? Who really wants to spend $25,000 from something they're already getting, you know, from their utility. But the second thing that the PPA does, you know, or the lease does, uh, which is really important is that it aligns interest and it's pay for performance. So homeowners don't really understand that much about electricity. And they certainly don't know, you know, if I put a solar system on my roof, how much power is it going to make? You know, you're telling them it lasts for 25 years or longer, but homeowners have never bought anything that lasts that long. Um, you know, how are they even going to know if it's not working, who they have to call to fix it? And when you say, look, not only will we pay to install this thing on your roof, but you only pay us every month for the energy we deliver to you. So it's totally riskless. And now you don't have to worry about any of that other stuff. That was even the more the bigger unlock, because the, the people who were moving to get solar, these were like dual wage earners with families. They're busy people. You know, there's not super urgency to get solar today as compared to tomorrow. And so you really had to make it a really simple sale. And the and the power purchase agreement really accomplished both those tasks. And that's really what blew the market open, uh, you know, in 2008 and allowed Sunrun to very quickly grow from, you know, nobody in residential solar to being, you know, the largest residential solar company, I think as early as like 2009 or 10. Yeah. And I, I one of the things that helped me kind of have my aha moment when I was being recruited into solar was understanding how it was financed. And, you know, I know that when you when you look into like creating a PPA, because what you just explained is really easy. What if we could put it on the roof, make the deal so good and so simple that there's really no reason to not do it now. But I think a lot of people that are in the industry now take for granted how simple a PPA is because it didn't start like that, like figuring mm -hmm. out how to finance this thing. So maybe in like layman's terms, especially for our people that haven't been working here very long, Explain how solar is financed. Like, how is a PPA financed? Yeah. 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 So the power purchase agreement generally has been around for a long time. And it's how, you know, Pacific Gas and Electric buys electricity from, you know, NRG. However, power purchase agreements before we showed up were 400 pages long with 50 exhibits. And, you know, we, I, even I personally wrote, you know, the first Sunrun PPA, which was seven pages long and, you know, began, I represent, I'm 18 years old, you know, and the owner of this home, like that was a really, you know, that was a really different sort of power purchase agreement yeah. uh, than those that people had seen before. 
but the fundamentals were there. The energy, you know, the solar panels, you could document work. You know, solar panels have been around since the 70s. You know, they're much cheaper now than they were then. But the ones that got installed in the 70s are still working. Totally proven technology. Uh, we know that on average, homeowners are pretty good credit. You know, that turned out to be a little bit harder to sell than I expected because, you know, we did start the company like smack in the middle of the Great Depression or Great Recession. Yeah. Um, but again, people understand that, like people who, you know, Americans and homeowners generally have pretty good credit. And so you were really just, you know, putting together these two things that always existed, but just never together. Yeah. And there were people who would say, oh, you can't possibly scale this. The transaction costs will kill you. And we were like, yeah, I mean, that's true if you are having to do a million of these things with weird companies and every contract is different. But we're going to use form contracts with form underwriting, you know, the same way people originate loans or mortgages. Uh, and it'll actually be low, you know, marginal cost. Um, and, you know, there were people who were really early supporters of that. You know, U.S. Bank is an example. You know, I don't think this industry would have existed if they didn't, you know, really make the first leap as the you know, low cost bank that would supported the industry. Um, and after that, you know, it was quite common that in, uh, you know, banks that we started doing business with, we would have to introduce the people who did energy finance to the same people at the same bank who did consumer finance and say, look, we promised this works. Can you guys just talk about it for two hours to make sure you can support it? So, you know, there was a lot of that that had to go on to kind of make it work. Uh, but it was it's like classically, you know, one of these like inventions where, you know, the cell phone existed, the car existed. But when you have the cell phone in the car, now you get Lyft and you get Uber and that's a transformative product. But it really is just relying on technology that already existed. It just hadn't been married together yet. Hey, that's a really good point. I kind of an abstract, I guess, assimilation. But on the way here today, I'm in Salt Lake right now. And on the way here, I was watching this music documentary on the airplane this morning. And um this musician, his, his manager was talking and he said, all this person really did was he took a genre that he liked that existed and took another one that existed and nobody saw them kind of working together and pushed them together. And now everybody says he's a genius for it. But I think it's true because if you take like old institutions like banks and, you know, consumer finance and things like that, and you're like, Hey, these things, like people are so focused in their one lane that when you present the idea of them coming together, it's almost like blasphemy to them sometimes, right? It's like, ah, like, no, you're shaking up the whole world that I'm, that I'm comfortable with. But that's probably how you know it's a, like a recipe for revolution, right? Where you're like, I can't see a reason why this mm -hmm. one wouldn't work other than no one's looking at it. Or were other people looking at it at the time? Like when you yeah. took this to U.S. Bank, were they like, oh, yeah, we're on to this? Or were you guys the first ones to really show them that it could work? Yeah, I think we were the first ones to show them that, I mean, it, they could work. They understood, uh, you know, quickly that it was, that it made sense and was worth doing. And I would say that, you know, it's the, the Community Development Bank at U.S. Bank, which has always had, you know, an exceptionally strong kind of mission to its core, you know, I think was willing to bend metal a little bit to make it work, you know, as the first bank and to take a bet on us, despite the fact we were still small. You know, it's easy, you know, by the time we had grown and we were generating thousands and tens of thousands of customers, you know, really big money center banks like JP Morgan, or, you know, it's easy for them to underwrite the business case because mm -hmm. they just know it will work. Um, but, you know, it took it took a couple banks like that to 
to jump and, uh, and recognize the potential for sure. What were those early convos like when you were going to banks pitching them this idea? <laughs> well, I mean, again, because it was 2009, mostly it was like the bank saying we're broke. Um, you know, I, I remember that that summer I was flying back and forth to New York uh, pitching people. And I think that there was a movie, I think it was called The Happening that year. Uh, you know, the plot line was that there was this uh, it was like a pandemic that when you caught it, it made you kill yourself. Oh, my God. And so people were just constantly committing suicide. <laughs> and grim, um, and I was grim. like, this is like what's happening in the finance world right now. I was like every day the phone would ring from someone else who would say, you know, we, we love this model, but like we're, mm. you know, we're broke. Um, so uh, but, you know, a lot of the meetings, people, I mean, people could see. I, I think it's one of these things like I've joked with people that you know, like in Silicon Valley here, we have these like futurists who predict the future, you know, and I feel like actually like seeing the far future is really simple. Like, yes, of course, we're going to have self-driving cars. Like, yes, of course, we're going to have bi-directional EVs. And, you know, what's actually hard is seeing the near future. Like, when exactly is that going to happen? Mm -hmm. Like, is this idea, is, is it too early still? Is it too late? Like, that's really where the rubber hits the road, I feel like, you know, in a lot of these sorts of, um, you know, new businesses. Um, and, and that was really, I think the question a lot of people were asking, like, is this time right? Um, but I think, you know, most people very quickly saw that, like at some point in time, this, you know, this would be the way things were in the future. So you mean starting a company and asking for millions of dollars on the heels of the worst housing crisis in history was a, not a great idea <laughs> or not. It was a hard sell. Yeah, no, I Actually, mean, literally, I say it was a pretty tough sell. It was. How'd you get in front of them? Did you yeah, guys have was, was. Did you guys have contacts from your your work in finance? Because I'm thinking if if Adam and I here have this idea to like kick up a new world changing business, and you say, oh yeah, we went and met with U.S. Bank, but like who? Do you just have these contacts, yeah. or you just start like networking? The local branch manager. Yeah, I think this is a bit above yeah, your head, right. Dale, but yeah. maybe you can point me in the right direction. <laughs> You know, well, we actually initially, like, the world of like tax finance, how these tax credits get financed is so specialized. We actually hired like an intermediary. But again, you know, come even April or May, and when it was obvious that the financial crisis was coming, you know, we actually, I remember I had this moment with this guy, Ori Franco, who was our lead project finance guy at the time, where I was like, you know, who should be underwriting who here? And we literally like started pulling out all the financial statements of these counterparties we're talking to to figure out like who's actually going to be around in two years wow. you know who's it worth our talking wow. to that's actually partly how we found u.s bank u.s bank held on to its double a credit rating you know through the financial crisis it didn't need a bailout it was one of the couple banks that took one and you know because they had to to make everyone else feel good uh but you know they they really made it through without any significant hmm. Uh, losses and 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 it was you know we marketed to them hard because we we saw that at that time. What was the first? How much was the first round of funding that you guys got? And then maybe compare that with maybe the biggest or most successful round of funding you guys have got. Oh my gosh! You know our our Series A you know financing right was yeah this was the equity financing you know it was like fifteen million dollars or something and took months to raise. Um, you know, our first project finance fund with U.S. Bank, I think, was like 30 or 60 million dollars. You know, today we do, you know, reprint project finance transactions that are half a billion dollars or more. And we've got one in the market now that's even bigger than that, you know, that's going to sell in a couple days. And like when we did the convertible, uh, you know, in January, 
uh, that was like $400 million. And we, we oversubscribed it, I don't know, like four or five times in like six hours, you know, so, so it's like, easier now, it's you know, things, things are just really, it's, it's, it's a lot easier. <laughs> what is, what is like a $30 Apparently million fund get you? Like how many, how many systems, how many PPAs can you put up for 30 million bucks? Gosh, you know, well in 2007, you know, solar cost like $9, you know, it's $9 wow. a watt then. Right. So wow. it was like. The solar system on my roof, I, you know, I was customer number one. We'll talk more <laughs> of that later, but it was uh, <laughs> that was ten dollars a watt. Good luck um, offloading that to whoever buys your house, right? <laughs> I remember, remember in our contracts, we used to have it used to say the value was like six fifty a watt yeah, or yeah. something like that. Wow. Crazy, yeah. So it's you know it's amazing how much uh, the, we got in the cost down, um, but yeah it, you know thousands not more than thousands of customers yeah. you know we would fill up a fund like that in you know a week or two now. Well, it's easy to be light, and you know you're easy to talk to and stuff about it. But I, I'd imagine it you know the road was a lot harder, probably filled with some early doubt. Just I mean it's probably hard to have this idea, young families at Stanford flying across the country trying to get people to believe in this idea that you think will work. Right. But how did you know that this was the right idea? But there's a lot of ideas that come out of Stanford Business School. How did you how did you know if you had any early inclination that this is the one worth yeah. like going all in on? Yeah, well, you know, it like it just looked like it so obviously made sense. Right. Mm -hmm. You could deliver a good return to the people who own the assets. You could deliver savings to the customers. You know, you were you know, providing huge positive externalities for the environment, you are improving reliability of the electric grid, you know, and making money for your shareholders. You just looked at that and you were, you'd ask these questions like, well, how much can we spend originating customer and have it still work? You know, and you, how much could we afford to pay our lenders if things got really expensive and have it still work? And like, it was really hard to break the model. Hmm. Like, it just looked like it was going to work. So the only real question we had was like, Will, will someone lease something that's on their roof? Like that was kind of a novel one, right? But very quickly it became clear like that was going to work too. So I think, you know, even though there were these moments, you know, for sure in 2009 when, you know, both Lynn and I would like, you know, wake up in a cold sweat at, you know, two or three in the morning freaking out about something, you know, like the, the, you just knew it had to work because it was just too good a deal for everybody who was necessary to pull it together that it just, you know, it couldn't fail. It was not one of these things where you're like, oh, you know, we want to sell, you know, pet food online, but, you know, there are a bazillion ways you can buy pet food and we have to originate our customers for like $30 or less. And we don't, you know, it was just, it, it was, the, the model was too compelling that you just knew you had to be able to figure it out. Was there ever a moment that you thought we should have done the mattresses? <laughs> <laughs> oh, there were, there are certainly moments I've thought that I would have lived longer in age, uh, uh, you know, had we done the mattresses. You're doing like the Memorial really Day easier. ad. But in all, in all yeah, exactly. seriousness, was there, I mean, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm assuming like anyone who starts and runs a really successful business, there had to be those like gut check moments where you're like, I don't know if we can do this or I don't know if we can pull this off. Like, did you have any of those like fork in the road moments that, you know, when you look back on the Sunrun story, you're like, man, had we not done that, we probably aren't here today kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I'm a big, 
you know, like the U.S. Bank was a great example of that. You know, there were a couple other critical decisions, you know, that we made in the in the company's history that I think really helped its success. And there were definitely some meteors that came out of nowhere that, you know, if we hadn't been able to dispatch with, you know, we might not have been here today. I think, uh, you know, one of the things that is just so wonderful about Sunrun today is I really, you know, I should probably knock on wood when I say this, but I, I really feel like we're beyond single event risk. You know, like, yeah, wow. you know, there are quarters when you'll grow more quickly or more slowly or, you know, where your cost will go up or they'll go down. But like, I don't I don't worry like the whole thing is going to crash, you know, and, and, and come to a, you know, spectacular explosion and, and just end suddenly, you know, whereas like in a young company, you just you constantly have that like the world could end tomorrow. Mm. You know, there is there's a story Lynn loves to tell. We were doing our Series B financing. And like time was tight and I had to like go get a board member's signature and we thought he might be leaving at like five in the morning. So I like drove to his house. You know, we had the lawyers working all night at like 430. And I was like going to go wake him up, but I couldn't figure out which house was his. <laughs> so I like but it was trash day. So I went through everyone's trash. on no. the block. Oh, my you know, gosh. Luckily, luckily, luckily there were it was recycling. There was, you know, there was recycling so I could look for people's junk mail. Luckily, the and cops like, ah, didn't pick you up. Right. And, you know, and I was like, there's our board member, David Busby. I'd like in the movie, rang the, the doorbell, way. saw the light turn on upstairs. You know, like he comes downstairs in his bathrobe. He's, you know, both pissed and appreciative. I think that, you know, wow. we had that uh, kind of get up and go. But like, yeah, you have that terror when it's a young company, I feel like, which is I hope, you know, I hope probably Busby healthy, still but, uh, owns you know. a fair amount of stock. It's I feel like, like Busby's uh, earned it. it. It's like, <laughs> I don't know if you watched The Office, Ed, but it's like in The Office when Michael and uh, Dwight go to save their branch. Go to David they, Wallace's they, house. They David Wall- That's exactly it's right. so good. Um, so in, uh, you know, in, in talking to you, it kind of seems like the, the, the business idea came before the environmental pull. Uh, but Sunrun is really good at having a mission that that unites peoples and like kind of ties into this. This is the right thing mm-hmm. to do. We're, you'll find like a lot of us salespeople found the company through the opportunity and then really fell in love with the company because, wow, we're doing a really good yeah. thing. What was that relationship like for you? Did it happen kind of at the same time or were you drawn to to one benefit before the other? That's a great question. So if you had asked me in 2006, like, can you really love what you do and feel great about it? You know, I don't know that I would have been like, absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is how I feel about it today. You know, when when, you know, Nat came to me and kind of mentioned, hey, solar, you know, you know, and I looked at it, you know, I was initially evaluating it for like, you know, you know, can this work? Am I the right person to do this? Like, can I make it work? Um, and then kind of, as you started to feel like, oh my God, those questions are yes. And then you like start to imagine like, Hey, what is my life like day to day in this business? And you're, and you're like, wow, you know, I I could, you know, work in an industry that like, if that industry doesn't succeed, like we don't leave a, a hospitable planet to our children, you know, like that I can really be part of the solution and it can be something that I enjoy doing. That's a challenge. And my skill set is like, reasonably well aligned with making it happen that was a that was a real moment for me yeah you know that i that i wasn't really i didn't have confidence i would be able to achieve um and now like it actually would make it very difficult i feel like for me to do something else um you know because there aren't a lot of problems like that in the world today 
Uh, and it's just like, particularly on those dark days, but you know, when you wake up in the sweat at three in the morning, you know, how am I going to solve this problem? Uh, you know, where the mission is just like the thing that keeps, you can, can drive you forward and just makes you feel good about like persevering through those times. Um, and then also it's all, it's obviously wonderful when, um, you know, you're able to just sit back for a minute and think about what you've been able to accomplish and like, man, that's really, you know, something I can feel good about as compared to like, you know, addicting people to video games or something, you know? Yeah. I, uh, one thing you said is, you know, I, I, I think you would have a hard time now going back and doing anything else, right? Like how would you join someone else's with the life and the ride that you've had and the impact that you've made, like severe, like economic capitalistic and environmental contribution how do you go back into someone yeah. else's company? Like you've kind of unlocked the, the mm-hmm. you kind of like found the cheat code to life that's like, hey, you can make your own things and kind of like create a life on your own terms when really probably initially you mm-hmm. may have felt unqualified to do that. But that's something that on a smaller level, a lot of the people that listen to this show are our sales leaders. And it's not that different. I mean, you have a, you know, a, a, a far superior intellectual like capacity than, than a lot of us. But a lot of us leave our jobs and we go out to these markets and we're like, okay, I'm going to just create a business out here. It's, it's real like entrepreneurship, right? Sunrun's mm-hmm. kind of given us the ability to say, okay, I'm going to move to Boston or I'm going to move to California and I'm going to open a branch and I'm going to run a team and I'm going to use leadership and team building. And I'm going to go out in neighborhoods and make business out of thin air. So like this entrepreneurial spirit that you guys have created kind of at the top really has trickled down. And now there's thousands of people that work here that have unlocked it in kind of a maybe smaller, but similar way, which is incredible. It's like yeah. quite a legacy. You know? Yeah. And it's just like, and just the quality of the team too. It's, you know, it's like particularly again in Silicon Valley, you know, a lot of, you know, my acquaintances, not so much my friends who know me, but acquaintances will be like, you started this company, you know, 14 years ago, you took it public five years ago. Like, why are you still working there? And why are you still working so hard? Like, yeah. like what am you know, what don't I get? Right. And it's like, man, it's like the mission's amazing. The team is amazing. You know, we're the market leader. You know, if we want to do something different, you know, like bi-directional EV charging, we can just pick up the phone. Anyone will call us back. Uh, you know, we've got awesome teams to go execute the stuff that we can dream up on. Like the the mission's important. It's it's really like I'm mean, like such a spectacularly fortunate person um, to have kind of like that entire suite of things all assembled. Um, and so it's like just so much fun and such a passion to be able, uh, you know, to 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 have this company as like a as like the thing that I you know plow my energy into. What's cool is like I keep imagining like Ed and Lynn walking onto Shark Tank and like presenting this idea. Like if it was today, like two thousand four, and it's two thousand. Yeah, <laughs> think we can like, make here's it our idea. We have this insane. Who, who insane. would say no? Like they would all say no. Like they would all be like, no, the margins are right. Like they would, you know, they'd yeah, all. How are you going to disrupt? But it's like, and, and like you said, now Ed, like if you mm. knowing what you know today, like you may be too pragmatic now. But back then you had this sort of blind optimism that you're like, no, we're going to figure it out, you know, and mm-hmm. like you just kept going. And you mentioned, um, you know, that there was a moment where you didn't believe that you could do it and then you gained the confidence. I heard this quote that said, um, hope inspires effort, 
where uh and i always think of like sports analogies mm-hmm. where it's like the underdog that upsets the fate like the the powerhouse like they have this moment of hope during a game where they start believing that they can win and that's like the most they, they always say mm-hmm. that's the most dangerous moment for any team that's favored to win is when the underdog has hope and that's like a dangerous place yeah. for a favorite to be so i'm imagining like you know this moment of like hope where you're like i think this is gonna work when that happened for you did you find yourself your effort increasing when you had that moment where you're like we can do this and i'm assuming that it just your effort went 10x at that point you know it is i i you know i so resonate with your comments and totally agree with them and actually think about that like watching ted lasso but you know what was funny is ted, I, it was man. almost like the opposite <laughs> we're big ted lasso yeah. fans it by was, the way you know anyone that's yeah, not yeah, watching right. ted lasso yeah, start today yeah start now yeah exactly yeah yeah, I still want to figure out how to create like a Roy Kent award for like certain people and individuals, but but, <laughs> but I do love Ted too. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, but I think the thing that really actually did redouble me a little bit was, you know, one of the things we underestimated is when we started the company, actually utilities were awfully supportive, and we were like, oh, you know, that's that's cool. Like we didn't really expect that, but that's really cool. What I what we didn't realize till later is that the you know when we started the company all the utilities thought you know this this crap is so subsidized like you know it takes our local subsidies to make it work you know we can turn this thing off anytime we want to you know and and so they were cooperative and then one day i think it was like 2010 or 2011 they kind of all woke up and realized like distributed generation has got a life of its own. It's going to work independent of subsidies. We are not going to be able to control it. And that's when they totally turned and became this huge force of opposition. And you felt it. And, and it was actually that experience where you're like, okay, now that the incumbents realize you know, it's like now when your enemy, to your point, you know, when the when the when the favorite realizes you've got it mm-hmm. and then, you know, they have to step up their game. It was that actually was like, OK, now now we really have to make it work, you know, because it's no longer just in my mind that this can work. If it's in their mind that it can work, you know, now if it doesn't work, it's going to be my fault. <laughs> you know, and so we have to really make it work. Yeah. It's yeah. Like, they saw the crystal ball and they were like, we're, this is not going yeah. going to end well for us. Yeah, it's like the first time your little yeah. brother hits you back and it hurts, and he sees that it hurts. I got beat up every day of my life when I was like 14, and then I finally, like a punch, started hurting my older brother. Yeah, and you remember that day. I do remember yeah. that day, like vividly. So, Ed, what, uh, what, what do you see as the future of energy, and what are some of the foundational changes that are starting to accelerate it? I think we all feel, you mentioned this time maybe in 2010, like, Holy crap, they're, they're worried about us. This is going to work. We feel the velocity of change happening more and more now. It seems like, I mean, f- the Ford partnership, I don't know how much you could say about that, but that dropped on mm-hmm. us from one day to the next. And then, you know, we were speaking with Mary the other day and she's like, oh, there's other things in the works. Like, what, where does it have to go and what's starting to happen to make you think that this will happen? The next 10 years are going to be a lot faster than the first 10. Yeah, well, because the infrastructure is there now, the the playbook is there. It's just a matter of scaling it, and uh, and you know we know what we need to do. So 
the the future of energy, I think it's pretty simple, right? So we've got basically um, electricity. Uh, we've got heating, transportation using oil and gas. And the thing that we have to accomplish is uh, first decarbonizing electricity and then moving as much stuff to electricity as we possibly can. And the good news is almost everything except for like aviation can reasonably easily be moved to electricity. And actually, I think it's like 65 to 70% of the decisions that get made as to like, is something electricity or isn't it are made in the home? What cars am I buying? Um, you know, what appliances am I buying? You know, am I using solar? Those sorts of things. And we're at the, you know, we're our industry, our company is right at the intersection of these things. So not only obviously can we fully electrify someone's home with solar, uh, but we are best positioned to take heat and transportation and move it to electricity. And then when we do that, we get another benefit that I'm going to talk about in a second. So, you know, like there, for instance, were lots of companies that tried to sell standalone storage uh, for residential um, and most of them really struggled or failed. And, and the reason was the customer acquisition cost relative to the benefit was just a little high. However, you know, when you pair uh, storage with a solar system, the customer acquisition cost you overcome in solar and then the marginal cost to sell the battery is slight. So that works. And by the same token, you can extend it to uh, electric vehicle charging or an electric heat pump, hot water heater or all those sorts of things. And then it also turns out that when you increase someone's electricity demand, they need a bigger solar system. And the costs that we incur to make a bigger solar system are about a third of the cost for the system, right? So it's like, you know, rough strokes, residential solar, call it, you know, three to four dollars a watt, but it's a dollar a watt to a dollar fifty to make a system bigger. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of margin opportunity in that. And, you know, if you call it PG&E and say, I want more electricity, like even if they're buying it in the, in the wholesale market for free, they still have to charge you 20 cents a kilowatt hour by the sure. time they... Yeah. are finished putting their grubby fingers on it. And so we can undercut that significantly. Then the really next cool thing happens, which is when you think about what it means to have all these connected electric vehicles. So, you know, the thing that everyone talks about, right, you'll hear these terms like duck curve or evening power, right? Okay. So I think, you know, we've, we see, we have a clear path to like daytime renewable energy. Everyone sees that, right? Then everyone's like, you know, wringing their hands about how do we get renewable power from, you know, 5 p.m. to midnight. And, you know, that's where storage comes in and, you know, people are like really struggling to figure it out. So, you know, the state of California has mandated electric vehicles, you know, tens of millions of vehicles in the state. The Biden administration's kind of half done that uh, for the nation. If, if you had three million electric vehicles in California that were connected to the grid and each one dispatched half their battery in the evening, you could power 100% of the state of California's electric needs from 6 p.m. to midnight, zero fossil fuels, period. Half the battery, 3 million connected cars. This is why the Ford partnership is so powerful, right? Because, you know, we co-developed the bi-directional charger with Ford. And the Ford F-150 is going to be the first car that can do this. But obviously, you know, other electric cars will be able to do it in the future. And so you've got, you know, all these people buying electric vehicles, frankly, because the, the experience driving them is better. Uh, they're more useful. 
uh, and also they're going to be mandated. And it, once you've got that, now suddenly you don't need the utilities to go out and spend $60 billion on batteries because those batteries are already getting bought and used in electric vehicles, mm. right? And so it's all coming together, right, where the, the individual homeowner, you know, is getting a battery because they want reliable power, is getting an electric car because it's just a better, funner car to drive, more useful. Uh, and in the process, they're able to solve all these other problems that, like, otherwise seem very difficult to solve. And like, you know, we Sunrun sit here right at the nucleus, right at the center, kind of able to pull it all together and make it happen. And I think that like network solar energy systems, you know, with the electric battery, with electric vehicles and the electrification of heating and hot water, like we're going to be able to accomplish that. And that's going to be the thing that cost effectively like solves climate change and delivers the customer experience that pulls it forward. Ed, I can see why you were successful in raising money. That was the most compelling sales pitch <laughs> for like an optimistic future that I've ever heard. But you know, and I think about I think about this. Everything's gonna burn down on the way there, but you know. Right? But we'll get there, man. No, it's great. And I think yeah, yeah. I know that level yeah. that that's really the the task at hand is so large, right? Like, I, you know, tonight I'm gonna fly into Orange County and I'm gonna see a whole lot of naked roofs, right? And then I'm gonna get in my car and sit in traffic with all these just fossil fuel burning vehicles. And I'm going to look to the harbor and see all these tankers coming in. And it feels hopeless. Like, it's like, I've heard Elon Musk talk about his pessimism for climate change now because he's like, oh, there's just so much to do. But if you think about it, right, the the headwinds that are already happening as far as like the technology in electric transportation, like it it is better. And then there's certain laws that are helping adopt that. The technology that's coming to the home, that there's just choices that there wasn't before when people... Mm-hmm. invested in all these like damaging products. And so it that that gives a lot of hope, but my question is what do you I mean it's hard to probably predict, but what do you think that does to the value of Sunrun when you're operating a basically alternative electric grid, right? When you can when yeah. you can provide enough power to keep the lights on and the utility is no longer needed or at least not needed in the same the same way they're needed now. Yeah, I mean, I expect, you know, we will be the Verizon wireless success story, you know, of electricity. You know, it is just it's just so much more sensible to deliver it and store it locally, to make it bidirectional and to share. You know, we've got all these people who are willing to spend a little bit more for reliable power, but they only need that when the grid's failed. So we can use it to support the grid when the grid's working, you know, and we can network and organize it. So, you know, it's it's our future to lose. Like we're the leading company with the best team, with the most scale, with the best partnerships, with the best technology. And, you know, it's just a question of like, how quickly can we hire the people to sell it, to install it, to make it work and operate and make our customers happy, right? Like it's right now a operational challenge. It is not like, hey, we need this tech technology that doesn't exist. You know, we need that capital that, you know, isn't unproven. It's like the tools are all here. They're all right here. Like we just have to get our left foot in front of our right foot and be faster than the next person. And that's, I think, been the history of the company over its, you know, 14 years. And I expect over the next 14 years and thereafter. Uh, and, if, and if we do that right, you know, we should be the most valuable energy company in the country, like full stop. I mean, I'm I'm listening to the last five minutes of this, and 
the current market cap for the company is just over nine billion. And listening to this over the last five minutes, I'm like, we're this is going to be so much bigger than it is right now. You know, you're like, and keep your stock. <laughs> do not sell my stock. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, um, what do you with all that in mind? I mean, I don't know if you're comfortable talking about it or not, but why why mm-hmm. do you think Tesla has gotten out of the solar game? It's a great question. And really, I always, you know, say I feel like, you know, this is a better question to ask, um, you know, Elon than me. You know, so I, I only have an observer's viewpoint, which is I think that, you know, from what I can tell, Tesla is a product company is not a service company. Um, you know, they seem to think their products should sell themselves. You know, they don't really believe in sales and marketing as a competence, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they like, you know, manufacturing. Right. And, you know, despite the fact that it's, you know, there is so much obvious synergy between solar and storage and electric vehicles, you really have to sell them totally differently. Um, It's a totally different process um, and it requires a totally different team. And uh, and I think that's just really hard to do under one roof. And, you know, I'm super grateful for Elon because, you, you know, like. Porsche wouldn't offer a good electric car if it weren't for Elon. Yeah. You know, it's not like just Tesla, yeah. right? I mean, and by the way, he runs a rocket company. And by the way, you know, I mean, like, you know, I- I- very impressive individual. But I think, um, you know, I just when you look at his focus and his interest and the way he wants to run and manage the company, I just don't know how well it um, it 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 syncs up with the current reality of just like what's succeeding at solar takes and 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 like how you have to go about doing it well it's like you know from the the solar panel factory manufacturing the roof tiles like it seemed like every couple of years it was like a new product that they were trying to introduce to the industry and uh, i think we're all you know grateful especially for the notoriety that he's brought to the industry and just the awareness but um is that one of the reasons why we've never gotten into like panel manufacturing or like inverter manufacturing like why why not get into the manufacturing side it's a totally different business you know i you know pre-covid i used to occasionally go to asia and visit the plants that make the equipment that you know we use and you know you walk through a lg solar panel plant or an lg battery plant in korea and you know the only voice in your mind is i'm so so happy we're not competing with these guys you know (laughs) like you know to to, you know the 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 scale and perfection and capital needs to be the manufacturer of a product to a global market it's it's just a totally different discipline than being a service company Mm -hmm. you know like the minimum efficient scale to operate a if you if you want to build a solar panel manufacturing plant um, you know, that's going to be able to compete. It has to turn out about, you know, 50% as many panels as get placed on homes in the United States every year, you know, a fantastically large minimum efficient scale, one factory, right? Not, not like a company with multiple factories, like just like one factory. Um, and, you know, so we help, we want to design products, you know, we, we've been, we've done a lot of work 
working with us, our, our, our suppliers and other companies to say, here's the specifications that we want for our product. Mm. You know, and maybe we take exclusive rights to them when we do that for a period of time. Uh, and, you know, maybe we help companies develop disciplines that they don't have. But fundamentally, like we are a service business. Right. And that is a manufacturing business. And they're really disciplined. They're different disciplines with different investors and different capital bases and different human talents and different locations, you know, with different supply chain needs, you know, and uh, and it, which is not to say you can't operate both in the same company. It's just spectacularly hard. Um, what what challenges do we still face? Right. We talked a lot about, um, you know, the things that are going well. But in order for that to happen, like, I mean, we don't get the same utility pushback. I mean, we've had people in our markets with picket signs outside of utilities in Nevada and Arizona and other places. Right. And we don't see that anymore. But what what needs to happen in order for this real, like rapid acceleration growth to happen? What what barriers are still in front of us? Yeah. I mean, the utilities have to get out of the way is really the problem. I mean, I think let, let me come back to like a, a, a classic example. So, um, you know, many of the people who, who, who work in Northern California are probably aware of the fact that it's often the case, you know, we, if we call PG&E for a main panel upgrade, they might even, they won't even schedule it. They'll say, call us back in 30 to 60 days, mm -hmm. you know? And, and the reason that's like so toxic is, you know, take hot water heaters as an example. So uh, heat pump hot water heaters, you know, which use electricity, work great, fantastic solution. And, you know, if we're going to meet the climate needs of the country, we, we really need to stop buying the gas ones and start buying the electric ones. Uh, but, you know, well, when do most people buy a hot water heater? Well, when their hot water heater breaks, right? Now, if you wait till your hot water heater breaks to change it from gas to electric, and because your electric hot water heater means you need a bigger main panel, and then PG&E says it's going to take 90 days to upgrade your main panel, you're not going to take cold showers for 90 days. You're going to buy another gas hot water mm -hmm. heater, right? So like it's it's stuff like that that we have to, you know, by law, by regulation, by like you know, those things have to happen more quickly. Um, if you look at, you know, what the costs are and speed is to permit and install solar in Europe or in Australia, you know, solar systems get installed for like a dollar twenty five a watt in those places. And, and the real difference is the speed of permitting interconnection you know if someone tells you today i want one you can be like great we'll install it tomorrow and then it's working a day later you know and we need that future that's part of why you know lynn has been so passionate for so long about the solar app it's a good first step in that process you know online permitting uh you know to expedite that process but we need to figure out you know how to make this you know much easier and faster for people like how do we get you know from a from a sale to an installation as quickly as possible, as low cost as possible, and with as little customer friction as possible, right? I think that's that's going to deliver a better customer value proposition. That's going to make our sales and installation people happier. Um, that's going to lead to more customer referrals. It's going to improve our financial performance. It's it's one of those few things where you're like, everybody wins with that change. And so that's really like that's the thing that we need to just keep hammering on. Uh, I think to really, you know, reach escape velocity, you know, at this business. Well, it's, you, you can't stop progression, right? And it's like from horse and buggy to automobiles and record players to CD to MP3, like all that, like the progression of electricity coming from the roof instead of coal plants is just so obvious. Why don't the power plants 
uh, why don't the electric companies get more involved? Like, well, they are like we already know how this book mm-hmm. is going to end. So why don't they just yep. get more involved now and get ahead of it and say, hey, let us partner with you. Let us finance you. Let us fund you guys. Like, let it like, you know what I mean? Why aren't they more involved? Like, why? Are, yeah. why what's your take on why they fight yeah. it so much still? Yeah, you know, some have, but mostly it's just the capital system that here's it's like a, it's a sad reality of the regulation in the capital system. So, you know, a regulated utility, which is who's got all these customers, right? Their business model is that they make capital investments and then they earn a regulated rate of return. So what happens is every year or every three years, you know, like Southern California Edison goes to the regulator and says, you know, we have this many billion dollars of capital that's been invested. Uh, we're going to sell, we think, about this many megawatt hours of power. And, you know, because we have this much of invested capital, we need to earn this much in profit. And then the regulator says, OK, in order for you to earn that much in profit, you know, we'll set your electric rates here. And so their incentive is to maximize that amount that they that they invest. Right. If I told you if I were your stockbroker and I said every single thing you buy is going to earn an 11 percent return, you know, you'd probably just buy everything. Right. Like that's the model. But because they're a regulated monopoly, they're not allowed to make those investments in things that ought to be done in competitive markets. Right. So like we've decided as a society, we only want like one set of wires going by your house. You don't want 10 competing grid operators. Right. Right. But it doesn't make any sense that the installation of solar power on a residential roof should be a monopoly product. So the regulators say you can't make that investment, right? Then you get the fact that electric companies don't employ salespeople because they're monopolies. You know, they kind of have an an incentive for higher costs. So it's just not really like a great fit. Uh, Now it's the case that some regulated electric companies you know, have parent companies that can do competitive things. So, for instance, in 2010, actually, we, Sunrun, did a project finance transaction with uh, PG&E. The CEO, Peter Darby at the time, basically said, you know, I was at Pacific Bell when McKinsey promised me wireless penetration was never more than 2%. I'm not going to make that mistake again. I want to be on the, you know, I want to be on the boat. However, um, you know, that's always non-core to their model so what happened there you know pg e tragically had an you know blew up a they had a natural gas mine that explode exploded you know peter darby lost his job everything became about safety it was back to the core um and it's the case that most utilities you know like even when a 60 billion dollar utility says hey we're going to do something competitively uh and, and we're going to invest five million dollars in it like they're their investors freak out uh, because the perspective is, you know, regulated utilities are really run more like local governments than they are like competitive businesses. Um, you know, Wall Street investors generally don't have confidence that, that the people who run regulated utilities can succeed in a competitive business. And so there's just this history of them uh, just getting hammered by their investors when they try to do anything competitive. So they're kind of boxed into this world where they kind of have to just figure out how to make money in their core regulated business, which means investing as much money as possible. And it turns out every time we put a residential solar system on the grid, 
that reduces their need to invest capital, right? There are less transmission lines when you have a lot of DG, right, uh, as an example. And, uh, and so there's this conflict, right, where the good news is they can't compete with us as a business because they don't have the salespeople and they don't have the confidence and the cost control. So the only way they can compete with us is on the regulatory framework uh, where they've tried and, and, they, and they try viciously at times. But the good news is, you know, hey, we're, we're pretty good at that, too. Uh, popular support is with solar. You know, 85% of Americans want to see more rooftop solar. 80% are even aware of net metering and, and want that. And obviously what we're doing is good for society. And so despite the fact that, you know, we get outspent like a gazillion to one, uh, we're generally able to win these battles uh, between the popular support and just the knowledge that obviously what we're doing is, you know, on the right side of history. Well, the, the political conflict is really interesting, right? Because it's... Um historically, you know, coal has been sort of a Republican type, uh, you know, they, mm -hmm. they fund a lot of the Republican candidates, all that kind of stuff. But then the general population is in favor of solar and everyone knows that's where it's heading. So, I mean, what's, mm -hmm. I guess, what is your take on how this is going to just go politically over the next 10, 20 years? Are we going to see a shift from yeah. Republicans going, Hey, like, I don't know what to tell you guys, but like, I want to be on the right side of history on this thing. Is that kind of the direction you think it's going? And why, why, I mean, is that, well, you know is that why it's a, is that why it's a political issue? I mean, I don't like, I think from a sales perspective, mm -hmm. like I'm always like, I don't understand why this is a political thing, you know, like why, why, why is like solar or something yeah. that like a Democrat or Republicans are more in favor or not in favor of? Yeah. So so it's a little more I'm going to make a little more nuance than that, because renewable energy generally and rooftop solar actually kind of have different power bases. And interestingly, rooftop solar is much more supported by Republicans. And I think the reason for that is that it represents like freedom from state sponsored monopolies, mm. which Republicans hate. So actually, like at a state level, some of our biggest fights right now are in the super um, states like California, where we get attacked on the left, you know, by like unions or something, um, rather than on the right by, um, you know, Republicans. And, and I think the reason federally you see the lines drawn around renewables is just the fossil fuel industry has staked out a power base with the Republicans through donations. So, you know, the, the state of the, our, our, system in the United States right now is that, you know, for the for the Republicans to win, uh, they can do so with the minority of the vote. Right. Because every state has two senators. Uh, and so and this is, by the way, baked into the design of the country. Like there's obviously no reason for a North and South Dakota, you know, other than the fact that part of the whole compromise to bring the country together was, you know, more representation from rural areas. So. Uh, and, and because there are more senators uh, from rural areas, uh, you know, the the electors who vote, um, you know, for the presidency, same situation, right? Like a, a Republican can win the presidency with 43 percent of the vote. A Democrat needs 57. And so if, if you are someone like the fossil fuel industry and, you know, you know, you're, um, you know, you're not going to win it on the merits and you're going to have to win it on the fundraising. Um, it makes more sense, I think, for you to focus your attention on the on the on the party that can hold power with the minority. 
Mm. Right. And so it's really just a donation flow from the fossil fuel industry to the Republicans that creates that tension federally. But uh, but not so much on a state level at this point in time. And, and I think, you know, fingers crossed, it looks really promising that this, uh, you know, this package of uh, renewable energy policies is going to go through, you know, in reconciliation this year, probably end of December. You know, it'll likely create like a 15 year, 10 to 15 year runway uh, for renewables in the country. And I think that'll be game, set, match on the federal level. And I think it's just mostly going to be over. Uh, then it's going to come back to the the state level again, where, you know, it's it's not probably a fair characterization that Republicans are 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 more averse to it than uh, than Democrats. Like mm-hmm. interestingly, like in Texas right now, you know, after initially blaming, you know, renewables for the power failure in Texas, the governor quickly pivoted when he learned that, you know, solar and storage can solve the problem. You know, and now suddenly like rooftop solar and storage is like his favorite product. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's complicated. I didn't know all that. That's, that's, that's crazy. No, it's interesting. No, it's good and context think, too, because I, you know, I think a lot of people's initial understanding of that is, is, is inaccurate, you know? I agree. And I think just hearing this from you is going to give our sales force just a really good perspective, you know, as they're out and, um, yeah, it's just a really, I mean, solar is just a really, really fascinating industry to begin with. And we tell, we say this to our sales teams all the time. Like we're a part of a disruption that you're going to look back in 10, 20, 50 years or whatever, and be like, man, I was Mm -hmm. a part of that disruption, you know, where how we're getting our power today is completely different than it was 50 years ago or 20 years ago or whatever. So it's pretty rad. Mm -hmm. One of the, one of my, and of course, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was just saying, of course the incumbents are going to fight you. Right. And they do it in every industry like this. Um, you know, the fossil fuel industry is huge. It's profitable. Um, and it's, you know, by and large, not particularly scrupulous, you know, and pr- particularly globally. It, you know, it's, you know, graft and corruption is like the backbone of it. Uh, you know, uh, energy extraction internationally is like a pretty tough business. Um, and people are going to fight you on it. But it, it happens in all industries. You know, it's the same reason why, you know, Lyft and Uber face these challenges and Airbnb face these challenges. Um, you know, there are moneyed, powerfully connected people on their side, but you just have to believe that if you have the better product, which we do, um, you know, who wants to take a taxi when they can take a Lyft or an Uber, you know, who wants their power to go out for a week at a time and have it cost more than have it be reliable and lower cost, uh, that you'll, you'll win over time. Right. And there will be the occasional setback, but, you know, we're winning kind of 95 percent of the time, but not always. But like the arc of history is long and we're absolutely going to take it. Well, it's going it, to like when I when you said that, I'm like, imagine taking a yellow cab right now. How do you even get one? Like, I, like, I don't even know how to like, yeah. I'm at, like <laughs> call 777. What's, what's cool is in like <laughs> what's cool is you know, when we first started, we'd have customers be like, well, I don't know if I like how it looks. And I'm like, look, buddy, in 10 years and you're the one house on the street that doesn't have solar yet. Like you, every one of your neighbors is going to be like, what do you imagine getting power from the power plant still? You know, yeah. like like yeah. that's going to happen and it's happening in some neighborhoods already. And it's 10 years from now, people are really going to say, like, imagine getting power from coal plants. Well, and I feel like the utility, like they they're just kind of like fighting for another quarter. I think you mentioned they know how the book ends. I think they mm-hmm. do. 
But hey, if I can scrap together another quarter of high mm-hmm. rates, or if I can put off your your MPU or whatever, drag it out. Yeah, just, I'll just, we got to drag yeah, this thing you know, out. I'll give you an upgrade, and but in six months, yeah. you know. Yeah. And it's super fascinating, by the way. Like the CEO, I think it was Chevron, was quoted in the Wall Street Journal today or yesterday. You know, natural gas prices have actually come up a lot this year. Um, and it's at the point where it would be profitable to go drill a whole bunch more to get at it. And what's fascinating is despite that that's really clearly the case, like here you've got the CEO of Chevron saying, we're not going to do it because our investors want us to return immediately every dollar of capitalism that we possibly can, right? Like everybody knows there's not real terminal value in fossil fuels right now, mm-hmm. right? So much so that like even when there's a compelling 10-year investment horizon, you know, because prices are high, like the investors are saying, you know, really would rather you just give the money back to us than made the investment because you know, we all know you're going out of business eventually. It's wow. just it's interesting to see like the CEO of business like that admit that, you know, in the in a major publication, um, and and say that's why we're not investing right now. The uh, one of the, one of my favorite like little pieces of Sunrun history is the I, I like the early days. I like that that one. I think one of the reason that you and Lynn have been so effective as as founders and and chair people is because you've literally done every job. And it's funny like talking to you both when when you know, we bring up concerns. I sometimes feel like you guys know the numbers better than we do in our own markets. It's not typical of, you know, executive chair people, right? But since you know the business, started the business, it's like a child you raised. You just know it, right? So you need to dispel, I guess, clear up one thing. Who sold the first Mm -hmm. system actually? Because (laughs) it goes back and forth. (laughs) What was the cost? And tell the story of the first sales. Uh, that happened at Sunrun and performed by whom? Yeah. So I was technically the company's first customer personally. And the worst deal uh, I ever. sold my therapy. <laughs> worst deal ever. $10 a watt. <laughs> I've never asked for special treatment. I'm a martyr. Yeah. Uh, you know. <laughs> no employee pricing. I then, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, sold the second system uh, to my therapist. All right. <laughs> um, who, because we were, because we were like totally had no capital at the time. I think their their PPA is like was like twenty two cents a kilowatt hour for ten years, then like six cents a kilowatt hour for the next ten years. Like totally crazy. But did they have uh, to do a down know, payment contract? And only was there a down payment uh, on those early ones? May, yeah, I, I think there was. I think there, I think there was, was actually at that point. Yeah, and then Lynn absolutely gets the credit for the first random. Uh, which I, I'm pretty sure she sold it at the Yolo County Fair, standing in front of a giant pumpkin. Um, <laughs> it was, it was. She was there for hours and walked away with one customer, but you know, so, uh, but she got it, you know, and she was like, I think this is gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> she she stepped away from the pumpkin with some hope. Does she remember that customer's exactly, name? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Do we know that customer's name? Oh my God, she absolutely does. I heard her mention it the other day. And and I'm embarrassed that it's I actually can no longer remember it myself. Well, she always jokes. But she absolutely she thinks the only reason the customer did it is because worst case scenario they go out of business, which was probable, and she gets oh, a yeah, free that's solar right. account. Right? We should. That's what we should do <laughs> is do a, a a door knock where you and Lynn go back to that first customer, and we give them some kind of like you know commemorative you know Sunrun first customer award. You know something. We cool. didn't want to tell you this 12 years ago, but you were our very first customer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's a hard that way would to be sell a lot someone. more fun. I thought I was worried for a second you're going to suggest that Lynn and I have a competition door knocking for who can win the first customer, which would make <laughs> me anxious because I, you know, but uh, but it would be that would, that would be equally fun to try. That's awesome. 
Hey, well, Ed, we're going to let you get, timer. we're going to let back, you get back to your family, man. We appreciate this uh, education that you've given us. We so appreciate your contribution to the industry and the opportunity that we've all benefited from. Like your, your, your passion for the opportunity is really transcendent through the company. And I think we all benefit. Yeah. From that, so, yeah. For, um, I mean, I know I can speak for the entire sales force. Uh, thank you for everything. And it's been a, it's been an incredible ride. And I think we're all, we're all looking forward to what's next. So it's going to be awesome. You guys are too kind, but uh, yeah, it's uh, the next 10 to 15 years. Uh, it's just, uh, you know, I can't wait. If you've liked what you've heard and are interested in joining our teams, check us out at viventsolar.com forward slash careers. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes and subscribe. Leave us a great review and leave us a five-star rating. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This is Electric People. Take these principles and go be electric.